Hey folks, and welcome. Welcome to This Week in Games, a podcast series from the fine people at Deconstructor of Fun. So, as always, uh, your hosts are Joseph Kim and myself, Mishka Katkov, and we have our much-appreciated returning guest, Mr. Eric Kress, a principal at Goss Amer Consulting Group. And you, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that Eric has held high roles in corporate strategy, capital markets research, business development, investment banking, and marketing. And he's been helping companies like Google, FunPlus, Sega, Kabam, and EA when it comes to M&As and corporate development. So he's a much appreciated guest as we go through the topics that we have today. And today we're going to talk about, uh, well, first one is a little bit of a sad news. It's about Jam City laying off a large number of developers. The second news is more of an interesting one. And Eric's, Eric's background is especially very interesting here is, and that is that Epic Games is launching a Steam competitor. And the third Third piece of news that we're going to dissect and talk about in this episode is Zynga's CEO, Frank Gibault, presenting the company strategy to investor at the latest NASDAQ. So you'll find links to all these news in the description. Um, you can leave a comment. We'd like when you leave a comment. We, we like when you send us a comment. And, and if you like this, um, this podcast, please do subscribe and please do enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Twig 18. We've got some pretty interesting and sort of diverse news today. But before we jump in, I thought Mishka, you know, we've had slush. And um, I've been hearing you've been going to lots of parties. So g give us a lowdown. What, what happened at slush? Any interesting news? Rumors? <laughs> you know, what, what, what happened? All right. So first of all, I have to thank you for for starting this light compared to last week. Before we just <laughs> jump into the topics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but secondly, and secondly, I have to correct. I wasn't partying all the time. Like I literally <laughs> went out on one night. I wanted to get to the conferences, uh, to the conference, and I wanted to get to some of the uh, the gaming event because they had a a really great gaming track, sort of a side event going on with with just a, a lot of great speakers. I think it was sponsored by Supercell and Matchmade. Anyhow, um. Overall, great event. Uh, I believe there's 10,000 people in this conference or something like that. It's it's massive, and uh, mostly startups. And there there's a lot of lot of lot of gaming involved. And because it kind of started off with being quite gaming focused, maybe some five six years ago, and they yeah. deviated away from that. There was a lot of health tech and that kind of stuff going on. And now they kind of pulling back the gaming because let's be honest, you know, the biggest exits, especially from Finland are coming from the from the gaming sector so it doesn't make right. any sense to kind of relegate gaming away but um any news any fun stuff i mean a lot of uh a lot of interesting stuff um you know just just knowing a lot of people in in, in those um in those um bars and whatnot with with the uh, with the after parties i think i went to three different ones um you know reconnected with with old friends i can't no i can't tell everything that we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> but um but it's it's definitely a fun one and sad that both of you couldn't make it here because i think i think you would have enjoyed there was thousands of people from 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 us i think there was a direct flight from sf and la coming in to, to oh there's a Boston. direct flight from la now i didn't know yeah, that Yeah, there's a direct flight from la direct flight from sf and direct flight from new york uh mm -hmm. just bringing those 
fat cash cow. The party plane, yeah. Yeah, party yeah, it's plane. Not, it, it's, it sounds like a boondoggle on Rovio's dime. That's what it sounds like <laughs> to me. It was, it's, it's definitely fun. It's definitely fun. The weather was absolutely horrendous. But you know we swam in the uh, in the sea after sauna and that kind of stuff. So it was it was fun for the people and a lot of a lot of a lot of you know a lot of ECs a lot of ECs uh, over here and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, corp dev guys from from various companies anything from you know from from every big company. So um, Scopely was represented. Shout out to Henry. He was he was here. <laughs> of course, congratulated him on the Star Trek game, which is right game phenomenal. Like I don't know if you guys are playing the Star Trek game, but that game is fire i love it i love it <laughs> you know what other game is really surprising is the command and conquer game is quite good it's not doing you very like well it. but i mean i i thought the execution was pretty amazing for ea i mean they haven't really made a good game since star wars so yeah um, yeah so yeah. i i agree i agree it's, it's a hard ip though uh, we're kind of deviating yeah, from yeah. the news but command and conquer is like this is my opinion i think it's a hard ip because even though we know Command and Conquer, not a lot of people really know it. It's quite niche PC brand, and it's kind of nostalgic. Uh, and the second issue with with that game is, I do I do think the execution is great, I, gameplay is fun, and so forth. But it's kind of going head to head against Clash Royale. And when you look at Titanfall, you have the Star Wars. You have, I think you have a at least dozen games that went head to head against Clash Royale, and none of them were able to carve even a tiny little portion of revenue away from that if like i remember nexon launched the titanfall game and they actually they actually closed down the studio prior to global launch of titanfall that's how (laughs) and the game was i mean it was beautiful it was it was really nicely done i played it for at least a couple of weeks you know enjoyed it and i was kind of like yeah this is great but it's not as good as clash royale so why am i playing two of the same type of games and then kind of went to clash royale so i think Command and Conquer will suffer from 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 being too close to Clash Royale, despite the great execution, despite you know the great production value, despite the good IP. I think they are just going against, you know, against a category owner. And there's there's nobody else there. Yeah, it'll take some time. Somebody will come in. Worst case, it'll be like Blizzard. You know, after developing for like six or seven years, and then I'll launch the no, thing. I don't, I don't think Okay. JK is not switching from Clash Royale anyway. You, you, you'd rather give one of your kids than stop playing that game. I see you playing. I, I, I do play a lot. I do play a lot, but I'm, I'm saying I, I would I would play uh, I'd play a Blizzard Clash Royale game or some other. Yeah, ones. right. You'd play it for a week, and then you'd be like, "Yeah, fuck these guys. I'm I'm going back to Clash Royale." <laughs> All right. So, what news are we covering other than uh, me partying all the time? <laughs> let, let's kick it off with Jam City because you know, at least here in LA, that that's you know that's been getting a little bit of buzz. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, Mishka, let's let's kick it off. All right. So let's get the sort of a bad news out of the way. Um, all right. So this was an article in Pocket Gamer and, and also on VentureBeat. An anonymous source were speaking to VentureBeat saying that significant number of employees had lost their jobs last Friday, which was about two weeks ago, um, uh, late November uh, 2018, if you're listening to this at a different time. Uh, neither the source nor Jam City itself have released an exact figure. And there was a sort of sort of a corporate message from Jam City saying that quote Jam City rolled out organizational changes today that altered some teams and staff positions. The company in a statement: "We are reallocating resources to support the goals of our global business. This is an extremely difficult decision, and Jam City is making these changes with the utmost respect 
for every person affected. We're providing exit packages and other type of transition assistance to impacted uh, employees. Um, so this kind of came as a surprise because Jam City just secured partnership with Disney um, and, and secured it for multi-year license uh, to, to, uh, to develop multi-year license titles. Now, even though it might be a surprise giving the Disney deal and giving, you know, that Jam City has been pretty vocal and, and pretty active in the community, when looking back at the numbers, especially the last 12 months, uh, you can see that Jam City is not, you know, not not growing, definitely not growing. So uh, from, from in terms of installs, uh, they are, they're down a little bit. You know, in December 17, they were at, at almost 7 million installs um, a month. Again, numbers from Sensor Tower, so... So please, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And in November 18th, they were down to 4 million. So just a loss of a million. But if you take away Harry Potter, which was the only game that Jam City launched this year, the installs are down to less than 2 million from close to 5 million. So we're talking about over 60% drop in the installs for the portfolio excluding Harry Potter. And actually, Harry Potter brought 53% of all installs in the last three months despite being launched in March. Um, when we look at the revenue side, so installs are down uh, a little bit. And if we exclude, and for, for the existing portfolio, they're drop, they're, they have dropped significantly. And on the revenue side, side the, uh, the, the decrease is actually very small. So they used to be making around about 17 million of net revenue a month, and now they're making around 16. But again, you take away Harry Potter, and you can see that the year-on-year -year revenue has dropped a third. Um, to to um to about uh, twelve million uh, a month. Now, when you look at their portfolio, tw basically fifty percent of the revenue is coming from two games: Harry Potter and Cookie Jam. And Cookie Jam being kind of their original hit, uh, the Match Three game. Then there's other few 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 other big games like Panda Pop, sixteen percent of their overall revenue. Genies and Gems, ten percent, and Cookie Jam Blast, nine percent of the revenue. We have to look at also the thing that they haven't launched any new games other than than um, Harry Potter during the last, last years. Uh, their live operations are not providing to be very effective, given that the existing portfolio have has decreased. And of course, you can say that there's a ton of competition in the sort of a puzzle sector of 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 you know match three games and and other type of puzzle games and bubble shooters and so forth. But when you look at the competitors, the the biggest one being of course. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Peak Games, King, uh, Playrix, they have actually showed that they are they are growing their revenues despite decrease in downloads. So when comparing the Jam City to their, their their competitors, we can say that they're not they're not um, they're not keeping the pace. And then you have to take into account that Harry Potter has to be a really expensive license. Um, you know, you you can make whatever assumptions, but Warner Brothers owns owns that IP, and and as as you know, as Joe knows very well from for for working with with IP games, it's it's not only you have to give the guaranteed, you also have to give the revenue share, and you also are hampered with the ads because you have to approve all your creatives with the license owner. So so you know that that puts a little caveat, even though Harry Potter has been growing so significantly and they and has contributed fifty percent of the revenue, we can only make an assumption on how much net revenue that brings because because of the revenue share and because of the fact that that the team running that that game has to be pretty significant i mean the, the production quality are really high it's made out of san francisco 
the probably the the most expensive location to develop games. So you know that, that's that's a big question mark. So to to summarize it, um, I don't think this is that big of a surprise when you look at the numbers, and it's not that big of a surprise when you're considering the latest news or not not the latest news, but but basically Jam City's goal of of IPO. And and when when you when you consider that goal, when you consider that their revenues are not going down and up, they're actually you know declining for existing portfolio. They have these expensive licenses. Um, that means that they have some fat that they need to trim before IPOing. And my assumption is that they were running a bit fat ahead of the IPO, and and because of that, they 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 were essentially forced to to lean down. And, and and probably these have affected mostly, I don't know, this is my assumption, these have affected mostly Tinyco, which which is the company that they purchased, which kind of makes these story-driven simulation games like Harry Potter, but they also have Futurama, Avengers Academy, and Family Guy. So so games that are that are very expensive to develop. And since since actually Family Guy, they have been uh, trending worse and worse. So they're expensive to make, it takes a long time, there's a crazy content cadence, you need a big team, and they're making less and less revenue with Futurama being an absolute flop, um, a third game of, of that series. So Eric, what do you think? Yeah. You know, I'm just not getting what they're selling. You know, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if the market's really that interested in something like this. Um, it feels like even, even in a good market, uh, this, this story just doesn't seem very appealing to at least investors that I would talk to. I've had some people ask me about it and I'm, you know, the, on the hedge fund side, and the, and I just don't see it. Um, and given the big correction we're having in the tech space right now, it makes it even tougher for a company like this to get out. Um, so, yeah, I have my doubts. Um, you know, doing the large layoff into the IPO, you're probably right. They're probably trying to right size. You know, as revenue is kind of declining, um, so boost profitability uh, going into the IPO. You know, they but they they have had a very good run. I think the one part of your synopsis that. Uh, is missing a little bit is that they came out of nowhere, you know, cookie jam, Panda pop are really good. The Harry Potter game just crushed it for a while. But the problem is that they're seeing declines in Harry Potter, you know, as they can't fill the content pipeline fast enough is what it looks like for me from the numbers, you know, um, overall their revenue was down 25% quarter over quarter last quarter in September quarter. They're likely down another 10% in December quarter. You know, that's the kind of numbers that you, it's going to be a really tough sell on wall street, like to get really excited about this story. Um, and, you know, based upon this trajectory, they're likely to see declines in early 2019 as well. Um, and as far as I can see, the only thing they have in soft launch is super chef. And I don't even know if that's the, actually a real game. I, I, I couldn't see anything else from, you know, I think they've of. got wild things. The, um, oh, the, the match three animal game. Okay. Is that launched or, or, or soft launched? I, I think it, I believe it's still in soft launch. Yeah, because I was looking at It'll, the numbers, nothing really popped out because you could usually see a spike in, in downloads when they launch something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that just vexes me a little bit is that Netmarble, which is already a public company in Korea, owns like 60% of the company. So generally speaking, if they want to go public, they're trying to sell out shares of you know existing shareholders. Um and not to get into this too deeply, but when you're going public, the last thing you want is to sell shares of, of the, you want to raise money to grow. You don't want to sell shares just to buy out investors. Um, and so I don't know, I'm a, I'd love to see the S one 
um, if they maybe they filed it confidential confidentially right now because I haven't I don't think it's out there. But just generally speaking, this does not fit a typical IPO candidate, even in a good market condition, in my view. Um, this actually feels a lot like Zynga uh, when they went public and even King, which were basically at their peak a few quarters before they went public. And they started seeing declines as soon as they went public. And that's <laughs> what led them you know, to kind of you know, blow their offerings, both of them. Um, and uh, you know, these offerings don't typically do well in the market place in any conditions. So unless I'm missing some like significant contributor for next year, that's going to get them to another um, cycle of growth. I, you know, it's, it's a really hard one for me to kind of understand. But yeah, I don't think anything's been publicly announced, but my, my own take on this is, you know, and being here in LA, it's, it's hard to not be a fan of Jam City and root for them and root for their IPO. But, you know, just, just to keep it a little bit real for a moment, I, I, I do agree, you know, with the acquisition of Tinyco and Harry Potter, the Disney Emoji Blitz team, Ukin's bingo game. You, you've got to think, and, you know, and with the um, with the, the layoffs, you, you've got to think that they are kind of making specific moves to to be, you know, essentially to be dressed up for an IPO. But um, uh, I, I, I guess I'll just keep it at that. I, you know, I am exposed to a little bit of uh, confidential information or rumors, but um, I, I, I guess my takeaway is that I, I wish them the best. Like I, I, I am a fan of the company and, and of, you know, gaming, gaming in LA. So um, I, I hope they do very well. And I think the, the, I, I think Mishka, you probably described their biggest challenge moving forward, which is, you know, they've had a history of like uh, M&A and making, you know, previously unsuccessful games successful, whether it was with Cookie Jam or Panda Pop, but now they're actually, you know, acquiring fairly successful games. And then from a live ops perspective, are they going to be able to, to kind of deliver the kinds of capability and performance that a company like Zynga is, is delivering? And, you know, we'll talk about that um, later in this podcast as well. So that's, that's a big question for me. Um, and maybe with that, I can um, also just sort of end this section with, with that question in terms of, between you know Eric and Mishka, what do you guys think? Which company will be the most valuable sort of you know public mobile gaming company in five years? Um, between whether it's Jam City, Zynga, Glue, and am I leaving anyone out? Well, you know, uh, sort of King. Well, I can take the first tab. I mean, I know I know Eric is going to say Glue, but but um, <laughs> uh, so I I think I think this is a pretty easy answer at this point it looks like it looks like zynga would be the one and the, the reason is well the re reason there's reason why it's not glue is because glue could be it but it's just such an unpredictable company that it's a roller coaster over over of a share so it could be or it could be you know not even alive so so that's that's how glue operates it just goes up and down uh when it comes to jam city i think their problem is that they haven't been able like yes they're they're getting ready for an ipo they have been getting ready for an ipo for a long time but usually when you're getting ready for an ipo when you're talking about games companies uh you have a crazy big pipeline of games and you just basically burst everything out you know the the final quarter before the ipo and then you show the crazy growth numbers saying we're going to release four games every year and so forth and so forth that's what zynga did that's what other companies have done but Jam City just leaning up and not really launching anything uh, apart from from Harry Potter prior to launch, uh, prior to IPO. So so I think that Jam City is is 
it's kind of weird approach for the IPO. And it's also a little bit worrying that they're so invested into licensed IPs versus, you know, growing and, and, and creating their own, like, like Cookie Jams and then like Panda Pops and so forth, because that's where the real value lies is in their own IPs and not doing work for Disney. And then finally, Zynga, you know, Zynga started with, with $10, I believe, when they IPO'd and currently they're at around $4. So it's not uh, a major success story in that sense. Uh, but you can see that, that under Frank, they have definitely been, you know, very effective, uh, uh, very methodical, very strategic. They're going after growth at every turn. You know, their M&A team is everywhere. They're, they have acquired a lot of interesting companies and, and they have boosted their pipeline of new games through acquisitions, uh, which makes sense because Zynga has traditionally a pretty good record of, of acquiring companies and then growing those games through, through um, you know, through their product management, live ops expertise. So my answer would be Zynga. I'm going to agree. Zynga is going to be the one winner ultimately, I think. Um, yeah. Ironically, since we uh, spoke so highly about glue, the stock has gone up dramatically. <laughs> um, but we still have to the end of next year for them to go down below four. Um, yeah. So I will, I'm, I'm still not wrong, but I'm not looking too smart right now. So we'll see how it ends up. Um, yeah, You're just too emotional. Great. With glue, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we uh, move on to the next article, Eric? Yep, sure. Um, the second article is about uh, Epic Games launching a Steam competitor with um, 88% rev share for devs um, versus like the 30%, sorry, the 70% they typically get, would get on Steam and other services. Um, so this is a big news, you know, your Epic is announcing a big digital storefront, you know, to compete with Steam. Um, and it also follows the recent store release of uh, Discord as well, um, which obviously is owned by um amazon if you didn't know um so the big change is basically the commission 12 percent versus the 30 percent industry standard you know there's no tiers or thresholds and they also uh, cover the five percent royalty if you use their unreal engine um you know valve recently lowered their rates based on title performance but it's still well above 12 percent in any every tier so so you know i <laughs> A little side note here. One thing that amazes me about Epic is that they were on the ropes. I mean, I, I can't imagine that Tencent was like really happy with the acquisition that they made, I think, in 2012. But, you know, now they're like the king of the world. You know, the story I've heard, and I'm sure there's some, you know, inaccuracies in this, is that, but in my view, they haven't really released an outside success since Gears of War in 2008. You know, it's been about 10 years. <laughs> you know, Paragon was the third person. MOBA that released in 2016 that failed. The original Fortnite launched in 2017 and bombed, you know. And then a separate team from Epic said, hey, we really want to build a Battle Royale mode that copying it from PUBG. And the main team didn't even want to do it, from my understanding. And now they're the biggest game on planet Earth. Um, so it's just remarkable how fortunes of fortunes have changed. You know, most of the time it's kind of the opposite, you know, things like Machine Zone, even Supercell, and of course Rovio. Sorry, buddy. Um, and then, but you know, occasionally you get the rags to riches story, I suppose. Um, so in my view, you know, PC distribution has been kind of under fire for quite a while. You know, EA, I mean, the big publishers kind of want to go on their own to re recapture that margin. EA has Origin, Ubisoft has Uplay, Blizzard has Battle.net, and recently Battle.net is allowing you to buy Call of Duty 
which is new, you know, Activision titles as well as Destiny. Um, they want to go, you know, direct. And so they're taking away AAA releases off Steam. And just for clarification, Ubisoft does both still. Um, so, you know, I imagine that all these publishers are going to use the Epic platform. You know, it's better margin for them. Ubisoft, Bethesda, Take-Two, et cetera. I was frankly a little bit surprised that they didn't move, have more, you know, these bigger publishers on board from at launch. Likely it's, you know, technical or legal or just the deals are not gotten done. But I, I don't see any reason why they would not want to be on board, really. Um, it's also great for another indie, for indies as well, right? Any, you know, distribution platform, better economics is good for them. And it gives them access to the entire Fortnite population, which is good. So the real question is, will Epic be successful, right? Ultimately with this offering, you know, it does provide, you know, Fortnite audience is a huge audience. Uh, it should get them up and running pretty quickly um, and see some, you know, success early. Um, it would be interesting to see if they actually do PUBG and other of the 20 plus competitors for the Battle Royale games. If they actually put them on the service, um, it'd be interesting to see if they do that. You know, I think there's a few issues that kind of may limit upside. I think they lack a lot of the community features that Steam has built out and even Origin has, you know, chat, message boards, et cetera. Um, and again, the audience needs to be trained to look at the store. You know, the players go to the Epic launcher to play Fortnite, not to discover new games. And so, you know, that's a marketing issue, right? They, they figure out a, a way of upselling them and, and, you know, positioning the store in a way that's compelling and interesting to the, you know, primarily Fortnite player. You know, Steam, for instance, was built as a storefront. You know, the Epic launcher was designed as a launcher. Um, you know, they need to bridge that gap, right? And the big advantage they do have is the friend system, which I think they, you know, built out with the most popular game on the planet, right? Um, for example, when EA <laughs> opened Origin, you know, after the first year, they said the average number of friends on the service was 0.5, you know, meaning folks were using Origin to download the games. They had little interest in the actual social graph of Origin. They just they just wanted to buy, you know, download Sims and, and Battlefield. You know, Epic does have this advantage. So, you know, generally speaking, I, I honestly don't think this changes much about industry dynamics, you know, besides putting another nail in the coffin for Steam potentially. But I think, you know, this is where the players are. And so if they can actually do a good job of marketing to the players and, you know, discovery and, you know, a, a compelling offering, uh, I think it could be could be really interesting for them long term. Mm. Is this the competitor for, for Steam or is it also competitor for Play Store? Uh, it's a competitor for Steam, but I, I do think that you make a good point because they did bypass Google Play, and you've got to think that eventually, if if they can make a play there, they will. You know, it, it's definitely more difficult, you know, to get on mobile devices, but I'm I'm sure they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So so it's not going to launch on, on Android phones where you you can download it because because I, I I'm just not sure. Uh, yeah, this, this is this is more their 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 piece their their product for PC, and you know I've, I I installed it the other day. And immediately had like eight friends. I actually like uh, their execution, and I I'm actually fairly optimistic for uh, for for Epic and Epic given um, their because because they have the engine and because their relationship with developers, I, I, I do think that they're probably going to do pretty well. 
um, especially again, Steam. I, I, I just think that Epic, when, when you see the level of execution that they have in Fortnite in terms of new game modes and just like events and things like that, you've got to think they're just going to destroy Steam because Steam for a very long time has just, I mean, the, the innovation in their product is, is, is pretty abysmal. So I, I, I feel like Epic is probably going to do pretty well. The, the bigger issue for me is like, you know, while, while Steam and Epic have this model on, you know, in, in terms of like a, a, a client um, client based model, I, I, I do think that what's coming with um, what we talked about in the last podcast in terms of uh, stream based um, opportunities with um, with Microsoft and Google Project Stream that those eventually I, I think will capture a, a fairly um, significant share as well. Um, you know, one of the arguments that I hear about Steam is that, you know, people have, you know, uh, people have a huge library on Steam and they don't think that for that reason that they'll switch over. And I, I have a little bit of a different view on that. Like for me personally, I've got, I was just checking my Steam. I've got 109 games on Steam. And, you know, if, 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 if I had a $5 price differential on, on the Epic Games Launcher, I'd, I'd probably just just switch immediately. So, and it's it's not really about switching. Like I I, I have both um, installed on my computer. So I, I personally think that there's there's a pretty good opportunity here. Yeah, they they, they did announce that they're going to do an Android store in 2019. Oh, did they? Okay, in, in 2019. It's not out yet. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense given how much success they had uh, bypassing Google Play. The other wrinkle to this is the audience issue. Again, is that Steam audience tends to be super core PC guys that are trying all kinds of crazy indie stuff and, and, you know, super core games, you know, Fortnite is obviously more of a casual game. It's a lot of kids. Um, That's true. Yeah. And so there is kind of a mismatch there. Um, you know, there, there may be a lot of these PC guys that have much more loyalty to steam and just not really willing to go over, but uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, again, it's just another problem for steam. <laughs> I don't know if it increases the overall revenue from PC games because uh, Fortnite, because right. a it's, it's also interesting like if this launched on mobile like i assume it would um like what's the funnel conversion you know when you when you're acquiring users for for the uh the um the epic store so you download the app and now you have to give all your credit card information and so forth uh because that that kind of you know decreases the funnel conversion but on the other hand they have the biggest game which is the fortnite and on android they have been already collecting everybody's credit card numbers and they have been you know bypassing the play store so it could actually be quite successful on mobile if they get other games in and it makes to you know it makes sense let's say clash royale supercell moves to uh to to this store you know now they put in clash royale there now they put clash of clans and they can actually increase significantly their their bottom line All right. Well, may, maybe one other thing we could do here is uh, a couple of speculative questions. And so the first question I have for you guys, Eric and Mishka, if you were Epic, what's your next bold sort of market changing move? I mean, you know, they, they clearly are thinking very radically. So what 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 would be if, if you were in charge of Epic, what, what would be next for you guys? Well, OK, Eric is making me go first. All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was just smart. Uh, um, I, I think they're doing the right things. I think they're they're thinking very big. You know, they're not thinking just about. I mean, they already have the engine. They already have the biggest game, but they're definitely thinking very big. They're thinking about bypassing 
the Play Store, which they already did. They're thinking about bypassing Valve, which would they're uh, you know doing at the moment. Um, I, I think they they can become a, a pretty big powerhouse, not just in terms of a game and engine, but also as a platform. So I I, I don't know. I I think it's 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 really great when when somebody thinks this big. So it's it's kind of like next level. I, <laughs> I'm going to take a little more of a cynical, pessimistic view as I typically do on this is that okay. as far as I remember, I think there were like 200 people at Epic, um, before the success of Fortnite. I don't think it's much bigger than that. Um, a couple teams, you know, so when you're drunk on your own success, you think you can do everything and mm -hmm. then you do nothing well. And in their defense, like they have killed it on, on what they've been doing with Fortnite in terms of support there. You know, and 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 all they're doing there is is amazing. Um, I just hope it doesn't. Doing all these other activities kind of pushes that aside because that's kind of where their most of their success is going to lie for a while. Um, I think what they should do is start looking at other content to make their platform more unique. You know, there's other. There are not many independent publishers left, but there's certainly a few um, that may be acquirable. Um, but uh, yeah. And then hopefully they're working on their next project. Because what I've heard is from you know people that actually work there is that anything can get greenlit right now, and that's a scary place to be. <laughs> <laughs> because right. if you're greenlighting everything, nothing's going to work. You know, you're spending a lot of money on nothing. But when you have a lot of money, that's what you can do, I suppose. But you know, we'll see. Uh, I think you know they. I will say this is that we are starting to see some kind of so, not softness, but like peakiness with with Fortnite um, this last sure. season that according to my son anyway, is remarkable and amazing. Um, so I keep telling him, I'm like, this game's not going to be around forever. He doesn't believe me. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it, I think this game has a lot more staying power uh, than something like um, Pokemon Go, although Pokemon Go is still staying pretty good as yeah. well. But this thing will have higher revenue going forward than, than Pokemon Go will at peak. Um, but anyway, I, I you know we'll, we'll see what their next move is. But I, I think they're... Don't want to bite off too many, too much at this point. I would think. Yeah, it's also interesting right. that that they are like Tim Sweeney and his, you know, the team is is using the price competition strategy at every turn. So they they use that with Fortnite, where Fortnite is, you know, compared to PUBG, it's it's free. You know, there's there's it's it, it's a tremendous amount of content you can get for a very low price. The seasons are longer and so forth. And then they're using the same thing on on against Steam and against Play Store, where essentially they're taking a smaller cut which allows them to to you know to compete with price so they, they're using that at every turn yeah but i do agree with you eric i, I think that um in terms of content the the epic store just isn't there yet and i was kind of surprised that they launched with such a you know relatively weak library so i if I were them, I would have waited to build up more partnerships and get more content on because, you know, that first experience that you get when people download the Epic Game Store just to kind of check it out and not, not see something that they want to buy immediately. And then I, I do think it's sort of a missed opportunity for them. Um, and hopefully, to your point, they do move in terms of trying to secure content as well as exclusive content, you know, maybe not to the degree that Microsoft is is has been going, but... I uh, certainly think that's that's important if, if, if they're going to take this seriously. 
Um, and so second, uh, you know, and just, just in my own opinion, I, I think something that would be crazy for them to do, but that may address some of the points that you made earlier with respect to community and, uh, you know, social features would be uh, acquiring Reddit, actually. I, I think that would be kind of interesting. Um, and so as a second question, um, second speculative question, what do you guys think in terms of five years from now? And I know we, we like to try and be very predictive here. But uh, what is uh, PC games market share between Steam, Epic, Google, and Microsoft, you know, five years from now? Well, I mean, but let's put it in perspective really quickly, as far as I remember anyway, okay. is that Steam is basically at, I, I want to say 85% at their peak market share for PC games. Mm -hmm. on a revenue dollars basis, as far as I understand. Now, it's come down a lot because a lot of these games have been moved to publisher's services so let's say they have 60 percent share just as a as a benchmark um so what happens in five years it's interesting because you're talking about the streaming tech as well as as competition from uh, you know uh, storefront yep i would i would i would have to say that they probably lose half share to the rest of the publishers to epic google and microsoft in by five years so they're down to like 30% share. Epic has 10, 12% maybe, and Google and Microsoft split the rest, something like that. Mishka, any thoughts? I don't know. I would be pulling numbers out of my ass if I would answer this question. So I, I have, I've... that's what I just did. <laughs> but you have to keep in mind though. So the one thing we're not thinking about is that these particular Google and Microsoft are are likely going to expand the market for PC games as opposed to Steam and Epic, which are just fighting for the kind of the same customer, theoretically anyway. So it's kind of a different it's a different equation to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I my own take is I, I think Steam's gonna implode. I, I, I think they're gonna go down to like less than five percent share. And I, I, I think Epic's gonna overtake them big time. Personally, but you know, we'll see. That, that that assumes Epic actually executes upon a content strategy that that makes sense um, and is pretty aggressive. Uh, and um, my personal view is, I, I I'm also a big believer in terms of uh, the streaming services. So I do think Google and Microsoft will take over half the market at least in five years, and that Google will probably outperform Microsoft it then. But I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. Okay, uh, so moving on to our last article, this this is a little bit of um, a different kind of content that we're covering today. And essentially, there was a um, a post from Seeking Alpha, which is a finance um, finance news blog that talked about um, Zynga's CEO Frank Jabot, who presented at the 39th Nasdaq Investors Conference. In this article is basically a transcript of his comments during this this investor conference and so there's actually you know and for for those of you who are in, in the industry I, I definitely highly recommend that you actually read through this transcript more carefully but one of the things that I've done is I've extracted what I felt were five pretty interesting themes that uh, Frank Jabot discussed and we'll be talking about um, each of those in turn. So the first, first of all, Frank discussed his tenure as CEO of Zynga and the process of reorganization that he led. 
So, you know, this first theme is around that, that process. And at, at the time he mentioned that they had a $700 billion top line, but 2% on the bottom, meaning probably net income against bookings. And he mentioned that there were too many leaks in the bucket in terms of R&D being too high, marketing wasn't well spanned, they were building too many games, and they weren't spending enough time on big games. So Frank goes on to say that as part of this reorganization, he felt that they had forgotten about live services. So the big push as part of that reorganization was to reorient the company to have a live live services focus and unlock value through better execution. And since then, um, you've got to say that uh, Zynga has done better. They've grown both the top line as well as the bottom from that 2% to 21.6%, but but also a little bit less than industry peers, which Frank also mentioned, who are around 30%. And so they also focus back on key franchises, updating them, adding features, adding content, and then they focused on acquiring new users and reacquiring lapsed users for these games. And so Eric and Mishka against this first game or against this first theme, how are you guys interpreting the performance and this, you know, so-called turnaround by Frank Jabot at Zynga? Mm, Eric, go ahead. I'll, I'll go first quickly because I don't have much to say, I don't on, have this much to say on this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, one thing I will correct though, is that they never were really, really a live services company. As far as I remember, like when they were primarily on Facebook, they were just about getting as many users the channel as possible and you know pump okay. and dump so i think this was just kind of a rethinking from from almost all parts of the organization on live services and generally speaking i'm a big fan of frank and i think he's done an excellent job of cleaning up the org i mean i imagine there's some still some dead weight at the company you know remnants from the facebook days but for the most part he executed this really well and they were pretty ruthless like they got rid of a lot of you know underperforming games or non-strategic games like Crazy Cake Swap, Crazy Kitchen, Castleville Legends, CSR Classic, Spin It Rich, et cetera, a bunch. Um, and ultimately, they were able to drive significant revenue upticks for, for their core franchises by pushing live ops and UA and reorienting the company. So my hat's off for this. I think what I would consider the phase one for, for Frank um, of, of turning this company around. And I think you know he, he's done a remarkable job. Mishka, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I have to, I have to agree. I mean, of course, I I, I worked during the uh, the Don Matrick era at the company, and and definitely it's it's different under Frank Chabot, um, in the sense that that you know previously th- there were there were basically goals of 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 just launching big huge games that would win on every aspect uh, in in the, in the categories. Basically, you know, trying to create a game that would would just beat clash of clans to the pulp and which was basically dawn of titans kind of combining both clash of clans and and game of war and then on on every other sector as well just trying to make that bigger and better game and while that is um you know that is a strategy per se it's really hard to execute and it's it's really hard to to build games that have to be the best game in the world from the get-go and you can see this clearly from from companies like you know like king or even supercell where they're having um troubles launching games and and for those companies you know i mean for for supercell that's fine they're they're highly profitable and they don't have the pressure of of being a public company and constantly filling their pipeline with new games but with zynga that that created um you know create a bottleneck they couldn't get games out of the door 
because the the expectations were so incre- incredibly high. So while while the expectations still still are high for the new games, they're just more strategic. So there's not, you know, they they had that initial launching ten games in in some you know few months when Frank joined, and and then they kind of pivoted the strategy. So there's less games and. And they're more strategically put into portfolio, and, and a lot of them are coming in through through um, through M and A, which which makes a lot of sense. So I, I think I think it's a, a smart strategy. Great. And so the second theme that I pulled from his his talk at the investor conference was how will they increase net margins? So in, in particular, Zynga compares themselves to other public companies and wanted to get from twenty percent margins against net bookings to thirty percent. So when asked by analysts how they were going to do that, Frank responded that they were going to do that, do this through new products and specifically two strategies against new product launches. So first through big brands as they announced relationships with Star Wars, Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. So specifically globally appealing, pretty huge big brands. And then secondly, bringing back their own internal brands. And he called out specifically Farmville and Cityville, but reimagining them from the ground up for mobile, which, you know, I, I think this is definitely, you know, the second one personally, I think is a better idea um, because, you know, I personally feel like the, the first approach certainly would hurt margins if you don't get to a pretty major scale. And so um, Mishka and Eric, we spoke about, you know, sort of this, this, this margins issue when we talked about Zynga before, um, what, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, I, I see a bit of disconnect, particularly with number one here, where if you're leveraging brands, you're reducing margins by definition, I say, I, I suppose. Yeah. But you know, scale is everything, you know, right now Zynga doesn't have a game in the top 20. Hell, I don't even think they have a game in the top 100, you know, Zynga poker, I think is kind of in that range on a monthly basis and it drives 6 million a month. But if you were able to produce a game that can break, you know, the top 50 and it has a license and drive 12 million a month, um, or, you know, 140 plus a year, you know, that would drive efficiencies in margin. Um, ultimately, um, the big question for me and the story on the stock is, can they execute against the second phase of their turnaround? You know, my concern, as I've said before, is that they don't have the talent to execute against the strategy. Now, I may be wrong. I mean, they're building up teams as we speak um, to uh, fight this. But, you know, for instance, Natural Motion has done a tremendous job of iterating on CSR, but not have been able to execute against other opportunities. You know, Dawn of Titans was kind of a train wreck. And their focus has always been on visual fidelity versus monetization. So as I think they pick up the Star Wars license, it'll be interesting to see what they pull out of there. The Cityville Farmville story is a bit scary, too. Um, you know, Cityville was a game that's been in development for I think the last six years as far as I remember it was in soft launch for a while and they were pulled it back as for, for lack of monetization I would imagine so that's kind of been development hell for a long time and I think Farmville has been kind of kicked around to different development studios over the years you know the next the I think this is the fourth version of a mobile Farmville um, and the beta was supposed to be the, I thought at the end of this year and now it's getting pushed to next year so so I you know there is some execution risk here. Um, and with this second phase as their existing portfolio kind of like stops growing, you know, this second phase of building, you know, a new compelling content, um, and a, a yet another, what is the term he always uses for, uh, 
evergreen titles, whatever he uses. What's the term? Forever, forever franchise. Like that's going to yeah. be their challenge is to create another forever franchise. Um, unless they acquire it. Yeah, unless they acquire <laughs> it, right. Mishka? Uh, okay, so the, the two strategies of, of you know partnering up with um, with IPs, like you said, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and Harry Potter, and the second one is is you know building up their own existing IPs. So let's start with the existing IPs. Um, that's that's a that's a difficult task because a, a lot of times when we look at their biggest IPs like Mafia Wars and and Farmville and and you know well, poker is still there. But but those were big on on Facebook and and they they sometimes were big for for different reasons and and while while some of us may have nostalgic view of of them at the moment you know you could argue that they they weren't they weren't the most fan friendliest games you could find especially when we go to to the iterations of of different simulation games that were very monetization heavy and and were essentially as as Eric mentioned they were you know pump and dump type of games where, where Zynga really acquired quickly is the scale they used the virality of the platform drove immense amount of users through through a game and monetized through that but didn't really hold players there even if you think at, at Cityville which at one point was the biggest game on Facebook I think that it had like 100 million MAU but look at the lifetime of that game it wasn't really that long so so you know it was a it was a shooting star in the sense, and, and a lot of the Zynga's games have been shooting stars on Facebook back, you know, six, seven years ago. So when we're talking about bringing back their own internal IPs, it's it's kind of it's it, it's it's a little bit more difficult than than it might sound from from the get go, especially since most of these IPs are simulation games, uh, and simulation games are are you know notoriously have been notoriously difficult. Uh, category to enter and we can see sims mobile from from ea just you know practically flopping this year uh unable to 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 uh, to compete against the older version the six-year-old and overall in the simulation category most of the games are really 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 old you know one of the one of the newest ones is probably the sims mobile sim city mobile which or sim city build it which is which is already about four years old so, um, so I think I think there is there's a chance, of course, to to build up their their existing franchise, and I really hope they make it with the new Farmville, you know, developed out of Helsinki, um, as was confirmed. Uh, but but um, it's it's a little bit more difficult than 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 it sounds. And the second part is partnering with with these big IPs, and and um, working with with these IPs is is a you know it's a two edged sword. Of course, you you get the traffic, but but you know IPs like Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and Harry Potter. Well, there is a Game of Thrones games, and it's developed by by Warner's Turbine Studio, and it's doing really well, and it fits the four X category. Um, will 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 the uh, will the new one how how it will compete against that? You know, and and so forth. Then there's the Harry Potter IP. Well, there is a Harry Potter game from Gem City. There's a Harry Potter game coming from Niantic. We know that it's notoriously expensive IP. So what kind of game are they doing with that? And then, then there's the Star Wars, and there's you know at least two Star Wars games launching every year. So so that's not also you know a slam dunk. And we saw it from Kabam's game that that you really have to have first and foremost a good game before uh, you can you know make something out of it. And and EA capitalized really well with the Star Wars IP with the um, with the RPG game. But you kind of when when you're using these IPs, you have to be really safe in your development. So you can't take a lot of risks. You have to 
you have to almost like a reskin a game and then put an IP on top of it. So I think, I think, you know, the strategy makes sense. It's very risk averse, if I may say. Uh, but you know, what, what Zynga has been doing under Frank is very methodical and, and they have been execution, ex- executing really well. So, so I believe that the, the strategy has, has merits and, and most importantly, they will be able to execute on it. Okay. Uh, interesting. I, I thought in previous podcasts, you felt a little bit more negative in terms of new game development from, from yeah, Zynga, I, but, I was, um, but, but now we're talking about new game, like they have acquired a lot of new studios. So we don't know where the development is coming from. So, you know, I, I, I'm a bit, I see. I'm not negative. I'm more realist when it comes to development out of HQ. It's, it's just notoriously more okay. difficult, yeah. not with Zynga, but with every company, you know, EA and, and you mentioned, right, right. but, but sure. now they yeah, have yeah. more studios. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I probably a little bit more in Eric's camp in the sense that, you know, they haven't, they haven't demonstrated it yet. So I'm probably more on this particular theme. Uh, I'm definitely more skeptical, although definitely, you know, with, as, as with the first theme hats off to Frank in terms of the reorganization and the way that they've kind of turned things around. And so moving on to the third theme from this uh, investor conference, and this is all about how you manage live services for games. So an analyst asked Frank about how do you bring in more DAO to Zynga? And Frank, Frank's response about this is, um, is that he feels that it's really going to be about Zynga's, uh, to your point, Eric, their forever franchises. And he defines these, fran- th- these forever franchises as franchises that can do over 100 million a year and last for five or more years. He then says that you know, the more of these you have, the better your portfolio, the better your growth and consistency, which is sort of obvious. And he mentions two good examples as Zynga Poker, that's 10 years old, and Words with Friends, that's eight years old. And both games are seeing the best quarters they've ever had. But, you know, the theme here is live services. So Frank then goes on to say a lot about this. And so this is um, a, a lot of detail in terms of how they, they think about live services. But first, one of the things that he mentions is that the game, game needs to be high quality, but also needs to stay fresh, which sounds a little bit obvious, but I, I don't. I, I think there's actually some nuance there um, in terms of how you keep a game fresh. He mentions that you know he also mentions that the hardest thing to solve in mobile gaming is engagement and retention, so that's where they focus all of their efforts. And without long-term engagement in mobile, he mentions that for them you you have nothing because it's a free-to-play model. And so the other thing that they also do is they apply data science to product management. And further, in terms of that, that freshness, freshness, engagement, and retention, they look out actually five to six quarters. And they're going to, um, and in each quarter, they're going to introduce new content and new ways to play to focus on that engagement and retention. He also says that they apply expected outcomes for each of those investments in, in terms of what they're delivering every quarter. And um, they'll look at ways to get lapsed players to come back and how to add virality to the games. Um, and these act- specific ap- activities together, they call bold beats, and they will share them and review them. Actually, even on a, a the product teams will review them on a even daily basis. And so some of these beats, they actually could be working on for over a year. And as an example, he cites CSR2. And the next bold beat for CSR2, he mentions they've been working on for more than a year. 
And finally, he, he also mentions that they institutionalize all of the learning. So with every bold beat or every new initiative or every new feature, the learnings that they get, if something works, they take from that game and they, um, they roll out across um, all of their games. So Eric and Mishka, thoughts on this theme? Yeah, I mean, Uh, oh, go ahead. I I don't hear anything new in this, to be honest. Like, bold beats is a a term used at Zynga for for well well before Frank's time. And there's a ton of great examples of bold beats in in a lot of their different games. Anything from, like, out out of the top of my mind, I would think about Farmville 2, on on facebook they had a bold beat and this is an example of bold beat which they prepared for a long time was was a sort of a wedding ceremony so you kind of work towards a, a big wedding that happened on the farm and and you know it was it was beautifully done it was shareable it was it was really kind of like a unique moment for players very much focusing on engagement very f- much focusing on on the virality and of course monetization followed from that so bold beats is is as a it's, it's a zinger term it's basically a major update that usually sees a new element, a new big element added to the game and something that is that the players would remember for a long time and some some something that that definitely has an impact on on the game. And then w- when he's also talking about this this um daily reviews almost, that sounds quite scary because the thing is like the more you <laughs> review, the less initiative the teams will have. So what it means is essentially, I mean, I hope it's not that way, but it means like that the management is just running everything, and and they have a lot of smart people in in, in the company. But but you mean you, you start reviewing people every day, you just you know in the end you're doing all the job because from that point on they will be just doing whatever you're saying they need to do, and, and the initiative will be zero. Yeah, I, I think he was talking about the product teams internally reviewing every day. Although I think they share them out monthly yeah, to the higher level executives. Even that, like the, the, you know, you have to have a balance. I'm, I'm very like I'm not against reviews by by any means, but but when somebody <laughs> starts talking about daily reviews, I'm like, are we auditing? Like, what is happening? Because you know, you you set expectations and and you expect your team to deliver, and if they're unable to deliver, then you make changes, but you don't review every day that's just my philosophy yeah how quickly on this one is like you know i i think they've done a great job of creating these forever franchises with around poker and slots csr to some degree i think i completely underestimated csr's uh the, the sequels um returns over time you know i think the challenge is really creating something outside of your core competency right it's something like a puzzle game for instance for them um you know can you be innovative enough to pull folks out of the established playing behavior of the people that are of the games that they're playing, right? So if they're playing Candy Crush, can you pull them out? And recently we've seen a ton of new entrees in the puzzle genre. It seems like there's an insatiable desire for puzzle games out there still. You know, Playrix with Gardenscapes and Homescapes. Um, Stormate had the design one that, that seems to be doing reasonably well. So I, I would like to see some innovation on the RPG strategy and simulation games to, you know, pull people away from those established games. You know, I think Design Home was the last real innovative one in the simulation that created a quote unquote forever franchise. So let's see what Zynga could do, you know, with the licenses they've acquired and and the IP that they hold um, to innovate and to bring audiences from all over other games to their games. Right. And I think from my perspective that the interesting points from this theme for me personally were, 
basically two 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 aspects. The first is like, you know, he didn't go into detail in terms of what they're doing specifically from a data science perspective, but I, I will say that it does seem that within the last six months to a year that the application of data science to product management is a is is sort of happening more and more and the ability to apply that whether it's to sales or merchandising or events or um, conversion or optimi- you know optimizing product through data science I, I think is a, a growing trend. And then the other thing that was surprising to me was that they how far out they look like five to six quarters, in terms of you know the bold beats or whether it's features or whatever, it, to to me is um, a much longer time frame than I'm used to with a lot of the studios that I've worked with. Um, it seems like the time frame is much shorter. But when you think about you know I, I think one of, one of the advantages of doing something like this is that when when, when you're planning like for example um, UI spend and you're forecasting you know very typically a, a year out. Uh, but being able to align your UA spend with these bold beats and the fact that you do have these bold beats certainly helps. I mean, there, there are a lot of games which don't understand that by not having big changes or, or things to help um, drive user acquisition campaigns, that having the same thing that people look at for, for a year, that your, your, your ROAS and your return on user acquisition campaigns are going to continuously deteriorate. And so without this notion of bold beats or big changes in the game, that, that not only affects the product, but it also has an effect on user acquisition as well. But um, yeah, so that was that theme. And moving on to theme four, and uh, just so you know, we only have five themes. There were definitely um, there's definitely a lot more we could have talked about. But moving into four, the fourth theme is 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 about advertising. And so Frank mentions that for them, ads are 25 to 26 percent of total revenue for Zynga. So definitely a, a pretty massive chunk now. And it's and he mentions that it's up 47 percent year over year. So growing really fast. Um, and the other part that Frank notes is that the team behind the ads isn't a team that plays golf with advertisers. So it's not like the typical type of advertising team, but are actually all data scientists. And one of the things that they do is they look at the relationships between the relationship between ads they serve and the number, the tie, the unit, the creative and impact on, on player engagement, um, especially. And so he mentions that they've got specialized machine learning algorithms that understand the impact on player engagement. And they've actually found that some ad units actually improve engagement. And he cites an example in CSR2, they have an ad unit that is watched to earn. So a player watches an ad, gets hard currency or an in-game object. And you know he just feels that it's really great for the advertiser because it's a guaranteed impression that's in context. And then they have all this data that they can use to help optimize. And it's good for the player because they can keep going in the game. And um, certainly because they've got you know this data science, machine learning, so when they can gauge when player engagement starts to fade, that you know they can start going into protocols to optimize the stuff, to uh, shut it off and on, and to like optimize it. And so that was the fourth theme and, and for me probably the most surprising thing was just you know the the growth of, of advertising and how material it is to, to zynga in in its current business so eric and mishka yeah, thoughts on this I, i'll be quick on this one advertising is really tough for me the more i learn about it the less i really understand it um and with particularly with it, when it comes to games you know and it seems like anytime i start to hear folks talking about advertising it's when they kind of are unsuccessful at monetization or out of options so you know, it's basically <laughs> like the kind of the lowest common denominator for gaming revenue. But 
having said that, Zynga's biggest franchise is Word with Friends and it's driven by advertising. And, you know, they obviously have a clear, solid ex expertise in this area and continue to leverage that. Um, but my opinion has always been, I think, creating games with scalable monetization is more of a recipe for success than on growth in both revenue and margins, you know, over the long term. But advertising will always be a piece. Um, and, you know, and, and they seem to be pretty good at it. So more power to them on that one. Uh, yeah, advertising is, is um, it sounds simple, but it's actually more difficult than it is. And, and I just recorded a podcast with, with, uh, with Iron Source regarding how to how to improve your monetization that will be out soon. But um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, I, th I think it's smart that they're, they're focusing more and more on, on ad monetization, especially given that they have words with friends that that, that has insanely high ad monetization revenues um you know even even daily insanely high ad monetization revenues and by that they're able essentially to squeeze the lemon more and get more out of that game because they have been trying to add more in-app purchases to words with friends and i don't think that game really can have that many you know many in-app purchases in it so so i think that by improving the uh, the ad monetization if even if they do a uplift of 20 percent, that would be still pretty huge for for that particular game and an overall Zynga's revenue. And on the other hand, they also purchased Gram Games, which has a lot of um, more simple games that can be much better driven through ad monetization, as well as their their pretty large um, po uh, casino portfolio, which which has you know those solitary ga solitary games with very high DAUs. So those can be also monetized in some of the uh, the lower monetizing monetizing countries through through ad monetization. So, so overall, really, really, uh, really important piece of all and, and really, really, um, really good focus point. Yeah, and just, just a note on advertising, Eric, actually advertising, especially like rewarded video ads has, has been growing um, pretty dramatically over the last few years. You know, CPMs have been growing and, Certainly, I think when we see with the growth of hyper casual, where we used to see, you know, a few hyper casual games in the top three, and now like 10 of the top 15 free games are hyper casual, you know, basically generating most of their revenue off of off of ads. It's definitely becoming uh, a bigger and bigger part of our industry and, 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 and market. And, you know, it, in terms of Zynga, I think one of the things that's good for Zynga is that they, it's, it's actually a source of competitive advantage for them because scale matters. So like, you know, the amount of scale that you have um, helps determine the, the amount of money that you're able to make on, you know, um, on a CPM basis. And so, um, and, you know, just the admon team that you have, you can negotiate better deals and things like that. So certainly probably a, a bright spot for Zynga and probably just going to um, continue to um, be a, a good area for them. And so, you know, we've been talking for, for quite a bit. Uh, so just to wrap this up in terms of the last theme, um, and this last theme going, going back to like uh, new product development was around how do you treat investment in new product development given Zynga's experience in live ops? And so the first point Frank makes with respect to this theme is that he compares um, you know, R&D for, uh, for mobile relative to console. And he just notes that it's generally much lower. And so generally single digit millions only Therefore, capital requirements of a mobile game are actually more in the marketing and not in the development is, is his key point. 
And so the implication of this is that you should spend a lot of time in the earliest stages of development, figuring out long-term engagement, how the game will, will acquire across markets and channels. So, um, you know, Frank notes that now at the earliest stages of development on new games, they'll look at everything. They'll look at cost of install, they'll look at LTV, they'll look at the metagame design, they'll look at the category. They'll do a bunch of competitive teardowns to get a sense of margin contributions at scale and do like all this stuff um, to try and figure out if the game will be successful or not later on. They also do things like, you know, um, looking at the game design perspective between Core Loop and Metagame. They'll then prototype, test, and, and look at all that stuff a, a lot very early because, you know, Frank's main point is that if you can get an answer quickly, it's really cheap to shift early before you put a lot of people on it. There's escalating commitments, things like, like that. And then, so then he goes on to talk about, you know, market testing ahead, ahead of game development, which is a practice that, you know, I've seen uh, really gain popularity now across the industry, especially over the past couple of years. And then um, the other point that he makes, the, the, the final point about this he makes, I think, is really interesting, which is that they apply a budgeting process looking at the entire life cycle of the game, including the impact of live services, assuming that live service is working. And based on their experience, given that, you know, now that they've developed expertise, it's becoming a much more predictable um, type of capability for them. And so one of the things that he mentioned is that they now zero base budget um, the lives of services. Um, so they're trying to capture the financial impact of the game from a full life cycle perspective. And, and especially this last point to me was pretty interesting because, um, you know, based on the zero based budgeting of the game, uh, a key point Frank's trying to make here is that you don't need to rush a game to make a quarter. And, and the point is that, uh, you know, because they have a profitable base and because they can factor in the live services, um, although they aren't going to take forever to launch a new game, now he feels that you know they can take their time and not rush. And so like a pretty money quote from him, at least in my perspective, was, was the following. So he, he, he says, and more often than not, it's, oh my gosh, I got to make the quarter. And so you rush the game. And ultimately, the player doesn't care about your production problem. All they care about is a great game, and so for me, when I when I read that, I I, I could you know sort of imagine people zinging with T-shirts with that saying, "The player doesn't care about your production problem," and and I, I feel like this is you know definitely a good perspective that many companies in our industry make you know make the same mistake in terms of like just trying to rush a game out, um, but you know definitely think about like for a specific game, assuming you've got the live services that you should be able to you know budget in you know, um, uh, the impact of, you know, on the game from having successful live services. So yeah, that's, that, that was, this is the final thing. What do you guys okay. say? I'm sorry. I was actually going to try to get through this okay. podcast without ranting on something, but you know, <laughs> ahead, the stock has gotten crushed over the last couple of weeks, months, partly because of tech downturn, but also because Frank got on the, on the call and basically said, Hey, we're not expecting to be profitable next year because we're reinvesting in new franchises and UA and live ops and all this other <laughs> stuff. And so everyone's like, we're going to be less profitable next year than we were this year. And it's like, shit doesn't work when you're, you know, when you're doing, when you're public company. So I appreciate the sentiment behind what he's saying. And, and, and I actually, I didn't read this close enough, but this is exactly the problem is that the Farmville should have been out, right? That would have like 
bridge the gap in which they would have grown revenue and earnings potentially if the game was successful, right? But instead, they have this like whole year in which they're kind of in limbo, and that's dead money in the in the stock game, right? So if you don't care about your <laughs> quarterly stock price, which he may say that, but you know, obviously the board cares. But anyway, my my whole point. But I think I think I actually think that's a product development or a, a pre-production problem rather than a production issue. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I think like the games that they were working on probably weren't the right game or the right approach. And so like the stuff that he's talking about with respect to like testing and trying to get, uh, you know, trying to figure out what the right product to make is, I, I think they've been misfiring on that end rather than like this part, which is to say that if the production part isn't solved, don't launch the game. Yeah, I hear you. I I, I just, again, this is my biggest concern with them long-term is that they haven't made a forever, forever franchise since CSR in 2016 and, you know, Wizard of Oz right. and hit it rich in 14, right? Um, and their failures yeah. are just, you know, a ton, like Farmville Harvest, Empires and Allies, Dawn of Titans, CSR Classics, Farmville Tropic Escape, and the big misfire on Cityville. And so... For instance, the new Wonka puzzle game came out recently and I'm playing it like a crack addict. I just, I don't know, for some reason, I just love those puzzle building games. It's ridiculous, but it's not innovative, right? It, you know, the, the monetization looks actually quite good, um, but it's basically the same game as the Playrick style of game with a building me mechanic with a license attached. Um, so th this will be interesting to see if they actually can grow this game with UA as they kind of optimize it, you know, as, it, as it's running right now. Um, yeah, and this this part I'll agree with you, Eric. I, I, I you know, again, as as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Zynga still hasn't proven their ability to actually create, you know, great new games. And you know, I I think the the thinking is right in terms of like the early prototyping, that trying to figure things out early on. But I, I think they I haven't think executed the that part, part of everything because yet. this is going back to to the Dometric Zynga essentially. It's like we're gonna review everything and make sure that this is on in line to be the biggest game ever, and we're gonna review even more, and we're gonna make sure we're gonna review, we're gonna, you know, add all these external companies to review, and and, and in my opinion, that's because you look at the you know the top games in the market right now, and a lot of them have been made by you know you know you have companies like Supercell and and Small Giant and other you know games uh, companies that focus on the team and focus on launching fast, because I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't look at the market yeah. yeah of course you should of course you should analyze the market carefully of course you should analyze the competitors but every time you do these reviews every time you put in all these different hops and loops and and jumps ahead of the team it will take longer to launch and while you're preparing to launch a game in that particular segment you know other companies might take a year or a year and a half but for you, it's going to take four years to be there. So even though if you find that nice spot where you want to be at in the market, in four years, it's been filled multiple times and the market has shifted. There's Fortnite launch. There's, there's, um, you know, there's, there's the, uh, the Pokemon Go. There's the Clash Royales. There's all these games that change the market. So you have to have a balance between the speed and the analysis. And what Frank is saying here is we're going to analyze the shit out of everything. And make sure we're doing the right thing. Well, guess get the line is the line is drawn yeah, I, in the water. You know the things are okay. changing. So without the speed, it doesn't matter what you like. Like production problem is not the gamers' problem. Sure, yes, but the production problem is that is the company's problem. 
Yeah, and I agree with you, Mishka, in terms of there is there 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 is an, an aspect of over analysis and, and you know, making games is um especially for, for, for free to play is um I think what people forget is that it's as much art as science. Um but and I, I personally am a, you know, I, I hate when yes. people bring in a bunch of external consultants for stuff because if your yes. own if your own internal ke- team can't do it, then exactly. you should have a different internal team in, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I'm I'm agreeing with you in the sense that yeah, the, the the trickiest part here is going to be whether they've got the right teams with the right expertise, like key leads who can actually deliver hit games. Um, although I, I guess I would say that I personally do like a, a bit of analysis in terms of the early phase. Um, um, and, you know, this is probably opening up a can of worms in terms of like the, the, the nuance here in terms of like what you measure and how much you measure and that that sort of thing. But I, I think there's like a, a right balance. But to your point, it, it shouldn't be exactly. it shouldn't and, be and, and uh, you shouldn't overly yeah, analyze sorry. because some risks saying that, you know, like, yeah, like, like well, go ahead. Frank is saying that they're going to give more time uh, and then with more time, the game will become better. I argue that with more time, the game becomes shittier. So the less time the team has, the the, the better the result usually is because that's when they will scope in. That's when they will focus on the important mechanics. But if you tell the team like, oh, guys, you know what? You missed a quarter, but guess what? We're going to give you more time. Let's give you one more quarter. Oh, and another quarter. I'm sure you can make it. Let's just give it more time. Let's just simmer it a little bit. That's a disaster. That's a, you know, catastrophe. Well, yeah, I, I think it, yeah, it, it depends. I, I, I think all of this is very situational, right? Like if you're, if you're Blizzard or if you're, you know, Fortnite, yeah, give it more time. I think it, I think it, it definitely depends out of, on the, out of necessity, out of the, out of the necessity of going out of, yes, you know, basically shutting yes, down the team, yes. they came up with a hit and the hit was essentially ripping off PUBG. You know, they didn't come right. up with anything great new. So and, and you have yep. multiple yep. Co- multiple companies that have come out through that. And, and King is another example. When they were doing great, they were launching games on King.com, getting quickly their prototypes tested, getting, you know, getting the build up there and then moving forward to production and so forth. And now that they're analyzing everything, they can't launch anything. And when they're launching it, it's it's like, oh, it's the same game with better graphics. Get out of here. Yeah, I, I think this is for me. This is this is the art part. This is like the hardest problem in in games. Is like understanding if you're going down the right path and to give it more time so that you know whether it's production value or getting all the mechanics in or 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 to cut it right. Just I get mean, that, that's software, the real art and, of this. Or, or in, in early beta, and then analyze it on on real numbers. That that would be my my you know my point for them. Get get your teams and leads. Put them into a clear time box. You have X amount of months to make it happen or X amount of budget. And if you can't reach it, well, your velocity of development is too slow. You can't make it. Or if you reach it and the numbers are not promising, then, you know, you're, the game is not good enough. Or you can reach it and numbers are promising. Excellent. You get more resources. This may be a good yeah. subject for another podcast, kidding. actually. <laughs> All right. We're, we're <laughs> hour 15. Coming up. Uh, this is not a good record. Did to we break a new record? Let's go and make some games, or, or, or you know, Eric. I don't know what you do, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and so, yeah, and if, if any of you out there have thoughts on this, clearly there's some some issues here that are, are definitely very, um, you know, controversial or debatable. Please do Thank hit you. us up on and Twitter. have a good day, good night, and good whatever. <laughs> Bye. Good night, all. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, folks, for listening to this episode. As always, please do leave a comment. Please do send a note. Uh, we, I mean, I personally really enjoy getting getting all the uh, all the messages from you. Um, truly powerful stuff. And please do rate this podcast and subscribe to it, whatever platform you're using. And most importantly, please do keep in mind that all the opinions, literally all the opinions expressed in this podcast, are our own and do not reflect those of our employers. So Joseph Kim works at NBC Universal. And I work at the powerful Rovio Entertainment. And whatever we say is definitely our own opinion. So that's it. Tune in next week. Hope you enjoyed the uh, this episode. And, and the next next one will be always better. Thanks, guys. <laughs>